Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Yes, indeed. Hello. Welcome. It's Downtown, the podcast, episode number 159. From the Zone Radio studios, I'm Rich Kimball. Here with Kerry Haskell, and we're brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. A couple of fine conversations for you this time around, as we do every week. A little bit later on, 80s hit maker, teen idol, that, that seems like a, a pejorative, but hey, it's what she was back in the day. Uh, Tiffany. Not only still doing well, but got a brand new album out and sounding great. She'll talk about her career and the brand new album as well a little bit later on. But we open things up on the podcast this week by getting together with our friend, a journalist and author, Josh Karp. He's the author of A Feudal and Stupid Gesture on the, uh, really the creation of a National Lampoon uh, back in the day. And he's written about Orson Welles and the making of Welles' last film, The Other Side of the Wind. And is an expert on all things pop culture. You've seen his work in Esquire and a number of other publications. We had a great time talking about a variety of topics with Josh Karp. Any thoughts you might have on, on the passing of Norman Lloyd at 106? I'm not an expert on his life, but what an amazing life. I mean, here's a guy who, what, he was blacklisted. He was involved with Orson Welles early on. He had this, you know, career that had ups and downs and, you know, all over the place. I mean, I remember him. You know, probably like most people of my generation from uh, Saint Elsewhere, right? Right. But um, but no, he he. It's, it's. I would say he definitely falls into the category of a life well lived, for sure. No question about that. Well, in regard to Wells, and you've written about Orson Wells, was he uh, to to the guys who were close to him? Was he a loyal guy? Yeah, he, you know, he, he was both. He was really loyal. I think as long. I don't, I'm trying to think of how to qualify this. He was very loyal to people. I mean, there were people who, like Norman Foster and uh, Agnes Moorhead, and you know, all these people who would kind of crawl across broken glass for him, and who he involved in project after project, and you know, you know, felt were completely brilliant actors and things like that. I mean, the, the problem with Wells, and I don't think it, it's it's I. Hasten, I hate to use the word used, but he, uh, I think without malice, he used people. I think, you know, he kind of, um, he, you know, he had all that goodwill um, built up with these people. And so he knew that they were willing to kind of go with his craziness. Um, you know, I remember somebody telling me a story, of, I can't remember, I think it was when he was making Macbeth about how they were shooting, you know, in like Morocco or something like that. And all of a sudden they ran out of something and he had like about 15 people there. And he was like, everybody just hang tight. I'm going to Italy to make a movie for three weeks. <laughs> and, then I, and then I'll be back with enough money for, you know, the film or whatever we need to finish the shoot. And people hung with him, you know? Um, so he was super, you know, like John Moreau. He was, you know, very loyal to, and she was very loyal to him. Um, though, who wouldn't be loyal to John Moreau? And, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and lots of people. I mean, there were people who were with him through everything, who he stayed 
close to. And I think he always, you know, had, there were a lot of people he had great affection for. Um, the big issue was, you know, that that affection oftentimes meant that you were waiting in Morocco for three weeks, not knowing if he was ever coming back. <laughs> and I'm sure there were incidents where he did not come back and you didn't know that until five weeks later. There are so many great stories in the Odyssey that became the other side of the wind, but one of my favorites is what happened with Rich Little. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, sure. That that was honestly like the, you know, high point of, not the high point, but one of the unexpected high points of working on that book was, first of all, interviewing Rich Little, who basically is, you know, this incredible impressionist who, which is, you know, something of a lost art form. You know, you don't have mm. you know, famous impressionists anymore. And here he was having conversations between Orson Welles and John Houston in their voices <laughs> on the phone with me, um, like dead on, you wow. know, nailing both of them, which is great. But Rich Little was hired because um, Welles wanted a character who was like Peter Bogdanovich and who was a young, successful uh movie director who had kind of surpassed his mentor, which was this, you know, kind of weird Wellsian, you know, thing, because that's what was kind of happening with Bogdanovich and him. And uh, he, one of the things Bogdanovich loved to do when he got really famous was he loved to, you know, go on the Tonight Show and all these other shows and do celebrity impressions. And he did Cary Grant and he did Jerry Lewis. And, you know, and he was a real, you know, you know, whatever, you know, it is about Peter Bogdanovich. He really, he loved every aspect of Hollywood. And I think he just loved getting to do that. So he, Orson hired Rich Little to play the part because Rich Little was a, uh, was a great impressionist. So he figured he could do this character that one of his, you know, character ticks was doing impressions of famous people. So he gets him to come to Arizona and Rich Little had told him, you know, hey, I can, you know, who had never acted before, by the way. I mean, literally right, right. had never done anything but impressions. And uh, Orson got him to come down um, to Arizona. And Richel said, you know, I've got like six weeks. He's like, but I'm booked, you know, in Vegas or Tahoe or someplace for a year solid after that. So you got to shoot me in six weeks. I can't miss a day. You know, I'm committed to this. And Wells said he did what he did with everybody. He said, of course we'll be able to do that. <laughs> you know, with not, you know, because he was always thinking, you know, a year ahead and two days ahead, but never anything in between. And um, so he, uh, so they started shooting Rich Little and all kinds of, you know, delays went on. And then one day, now there are different versions of the story, but Rich Little's version of, that finally the day came where he said to Orson, you know, Hey, this is, this is the day I've got to leave. Um, and other, you know, other people said that Rich Little just vanished, that he got fed up and disappeared. Nobody knew what happened to him. Um, and that Wells was kind of left in the situation of, Oh my God, one of my main characters is gone. But according to Rich Little, he said, you know, hey, now I got to go. And Wells said, okay, don't worry about it. I'll shoot you on the way to the airport. And so <laughs> he got him in the back of a limousine going to the Phoenix airport from Cave Creek, Arizona. 
And Orson is just in there with a handheld camera, you know, shoot, just asking him questions and shooting stuff with Rich Little, um, which is just, you know, perfect. Now, of course, as it turned into for Wells, Wells used this as an excuse to start the movie almost completely over. <laughs> because, because I remember, I think Frank Marshall, who's the producer, said something like that to me. He said, that Orson, as usual, used this as a reason to, to start over. And my favorite part of all of it is that he then hired Peter Bogdanovich to play Peter Bogdanovich <laughs> without saying you're playing yourself. Right. So that, that always, I love that part. So. And, and the, uh, one of my favorite interviews we've ever done here was talking to Bogdanovich a couple of years ago. He was, guy, he was great, so generous with his time, but he always, he wanted to always make a point that he had mended fences with Orson before the end. Yeah. Yeah, he did. He, you know, he, I mean, his, Orson had, you know, so many relationships that are hard to think of anyone else in Hollywood having had, you know, like going back to your question about the loyalty, you know, his cinematographer, you know, we you know was with him for, you know, 15 years, you know, and having to make porno movies on the side <laughs> to actually get paid for something, yes. but was totally there whenever Orson wanted him. Yeah. And with Peter, he was, you know, I mean, I think Orson, you know, that really kind of, to some extent, betrayed Peter a little bit. Um, he kind of, you know, I think was, you know, didn't feel great about the fact that he had been, surpassed he liked to view peter and he loved him too i mean i think orson absolutely loved peter but i think there was this you know distance he would create by you know kind of basically you know crapping on somebody behind their back and bogdanovich since he'd become so successful was a good example of that and um you know there's <laughs> the story what happened was orson wound up taking over peter's house um <laughs> which was this big mansion in Bel Air. And he was shooting there and living there. Peter, he said, can I stay here for a little while? Peter said, sure, I'm going to Europe to shoot a movie. And when he came back, his house was a film set. <laughs> and I remember Sybil Shepard telling me that she and Peter were living in this tiny little corner of this mansion and everything else belonged to Orson. And it was like the man who came to dinner. Like <laughs> he, he set himself on fire by putting a lit cigar in his bathrobe in the middle of the night and falling asleep. He, you know, would buy fudgesicles and eat like a thousand fudgesicles and then start screaming about who ate all the fudgesicles. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> and I, I love the idea of him accusing Sybil Shepherd of eating all the fudgesicles too, because it was, you know, <laughs> the three of them. But what wound up happening was Peter finally had to say, you know, Orson, you know, you, I, you're going to have to start planning to find a place to, uh, to do this elsewhere. And Orson um, you know, said, of course, of course, of course. And then Peter went to the studio that day and came back and everything was gone. Like this whole, you know, set, this whole world Orson had set up there <laughs> was gone and he couldn't find Orson for like a week. Um, and at that, that was kind of Orson's breakup with him at the time. He, uh, you know, he, he, you know, was not great. <laughs> Obviously, at you know, at feeling like he'd, you know, feeling in a secondary position, I guess, to somebody. So he, um, 
yeah, so he just he just vanished, and that was there were great exchanges of letters between the two of them that I remember reading after that that are you know just you know Peter kind of you know saying like well could you you know possibly pay me for you know the fact that I paid rental on another house for you. <laughs> <laughs> and Orson just saying, you know, like, well, you know, you have to take that up with my producer. You know, I, I, I'm not going to give you that money. So, uh, but yeah, Peter, I, in the end, you know, when I spoke to him, had nothing but affection for Orson. And I think Orson truly loved him. I think he just had, you know, his way of showing that he loved somebody was not the way perhaps the rest of us. We're talking with Josh Carp here on Danton. Did you see Mank? And if you did, what were your thoughts on it? Yeah, I did. Um, you know, there obviously there's the whole, um, you know, and, and maybe not obviously because I, um, but for people who are like really big Wells people, this is like the huge Orson Wells, you know, like uh, like the way he really got screwed, I guess, for lack of a better word, because Pauline Kale wrote this big you know, article in the New Yorker saying that, you know, Mankiewicz was the genius behind Citizen Kane and that Orson took all the credit. And it was a very flimsy, certainly journalistically, um, you know, piece of piece of writing. So people were, you know, making Mankiewicz the hero of Citizen Kane and the genius of Citizen Kane and taking away the one thing that Orson kind of always had, you know, that was a, he was always that guy. And, um, you know, so there are a lot of people who just the second the, the idea of this movie happened were really worked up. Um, so I didn't have that problem because I just tried to accept it as a movie. And I know that movies fund the facts and you got to do that to make a movie. That said, I was really bored. I don't. My criticism is not necessary. I mean, the way it treated Orson Welles was, was funny in, in that a couple times he shows up and he just, even what, no matter what he's saying, he just looks like he's the devil. <laughs> like the guy who played him did a great job, yeah. but also made him very devilish. But I just didn't, you know, like, I don't know. I, I remember talking to somebody and they were like, you know, writers always love to write about people writing and there's nothing more boring than watching someone write and on screen and to, you know, kind of, I mean, I know more than that happened in Mac, but I just found it, you know, I was like, okay, yeah, that's kind of that, you know, like the writer's story has to be a great story for people to, <laughs> to want to watch that. And I say that as a writer. Um, so I was bored. That's bottom line. <laughs> I, you know, I thought it was fine. I thought Arliss Howard was great in it. Um, you know, I thought, uh, oh, what's the like, Tom Pelfrey who played, um, you know, Mike Woods, brother was great in it. Mm -hmm. Um, Gary Oldman was, you know, terrific, you know, everybody was good. It just, I just kind of didn't hold my, hold my interest. And I am like the, the market for that kind of movie. Well, so. I'm with you on that too. And I, and I had trouble with the, you know, the age and I, you know, I know they, like Oldman was great, but I'm like, he's way too old to play that part. Right. Oh, for sure. Right. I mean, that's, and yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I, and I, um, yeah, you would not, I, I, I would be hard pressed to think of, you know, 
it, it, it did. It altered things in a in a way, you know, because you think you're thinking of Mankiewicz as this cranky old man, right? Right. And he's what in his you know supposed to be in his forties. Yeah, early forties, I think. Yeah, early forties, and he and he looks you know, he looks older than me, so that's not a good sign. <laughs> no matter how much he was drinking. Uh, Josh, we can't have you on without talking a little 1970. So let me throw this uh, this curveball at you uh, out of nowhere. If somebody said to you, what movie, and not the best of the 70s by any stretch, but what movie could tell people from another place in time what the 70s were all about more than any other film? Whew. Um, that's, a, that's a great question. I, You know, um, I, I can think of a couple. I, the one, and I may have said this to you before, but the one that really sticks out to me is the Bad News Bears, primarily mm. because it, it is, I think, the most accurate depiction of what it was to be a child in the 70s. Oh, absolutely. It, it, you know, it takes place in California. I grew up outside of Chicago. It There's no, you could have grown up, you know, in New Mexico or Nebraska or Montana, and you watch that and you're like, yep, that's what it was like, because it feels like it. You know, like I, I watch it and I go right back to being Todd. Um, and, and Michael Ritchie's movies, um, you know, who directed that, who's kind of, you know, didn't really, you know, wind up being all that, uh, you know, all that famous of a director. I think, you know, the, you know, people don't look back and go like, oh, my God, Michael Ritchie. But he also made this movie called Smile. Oh, yeah. With Bruce um, Dern, right? Yeah, with Bruce Dern. And it was, you know, I. I there was this whole, you know, the seventies were a fairly unsupervised time in which to be a child. <laughs> and it also, there was not the amount of content. And I, my recollection of my childhood is that smile was on at four o'clock, at least twice a week on TV. <laughs> it was just always on. And it was so far too adult for any school kid to watch when they came home <laughs> from school. But like all my friends and I saw smile like 500 times. And, you know, and it's about the Southern California beauty pageant and kind of suburban angst and misery of the adults of that time. And it was it was like watching that was like going to the Pinewood Derby for my Cub Scout troop like 85 <laughs> times in a row. <laughs> so those movies, those two movies to me really just feel like the 70s. You know, I mean, they, they just, it, it, Bad News Bears particularly, I think that one, you know, it just absolutely, um, you know, just just nails it. I mean, I, I watch it any time and I'm immediately 10 years old again, you know, with the, you know, with the dad drinking in the sand. Oh, and, and it's, I, it's, for my money, it's the best sports movie ever made. That's absolutely. And it's like, I mean, that and Rocky are the only two where they lose, right? Yeah. And it's a victory, which <laughs> which may be a metaphor, metaphor for the 70s on some level, too. <laughs> um, but, yeah, no, I, I think it's the best sports movie, too. I think it's it's such a, it's a great, I don't know. I mean, it's, just, it's got, you know, what I love about it is how, you know, you, you know, you kind of like, in when you think about it, you think like, oh, Walter Matthau, you know, no, he's got this great relationship with, 
you know, uh, with Tatum O'Neill's character and he's like a surrogate father figure and you're like, which, you know, you forget the part where he's like drunk and he like throws a beer can at her because she wants him to be more like a parent. You know, everybody is like super flawed. And, uh, and, and the, my worst, the worst thing to me about being an adult is watching it. And I started actually, there's, there are two scenes in which I empathize with Vic Morrow. Oh yes, is really d- depressing. But you know, you kind of see him, who's like the bad guy, you know. And I'm always like, oh, you know, when I when I started coaching little league, I was like, you know, well, that's not what I'm going to be. I know, <laughs> know that that's the model of what I'm not supposed to do. And then you know, I'm like, well, God, he shouldn't have hit his kid, but I mean, he did throw at the kid's head. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like. <laughs> Something a little less severe, but yeah, that was bad news. Like he threw at the kid's head, like on purpose. You know, you know, you don't want anybody to do that. So there, it's it, it's funny. I mean, I think the characters in that movie are in some weird way, and not to sound like you know a total moron, but like are in a weird way more nuanced than most characters in like Academy Award winning movies. No, I, I would agree completely on that. And I'm always reminded of uh, a coach I had when I was about 11 or 12 after we, I don't know, had a, several errors out in the field. And he's standing in the dugout, as I recall, cigarette in hand and looked at us right. and said, Jesus, you guys, I bet on you and I'm losing. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> like you're betting on a game with 11 and 12 year olds. This is fantastic. That, you know, that. <laughs> When I was like talking about the Pinewood Derby before, I, I recall vividly. If, if anything says seventies, it was it was this moment. Was I was watching, you know, the the cars race. We're in the gym at my junior high school um, or middle school or whatever, and uh, and the guy who ran it was who ran Cub Scouts was watching over my shoulder, <laughs> and he leaned forward, and his cigarette burned the back of my neck (laughs) because he was smoking of course indoors you know while this was happening and i bumped into him and he spilled scotch all over my shoulder (laughs) like no kidding it was like every dad every dad had a drink two-thirds of everybody except for my dad was smoking a cigarette i mean it was just i I always even at the age of like 11 i was like yeah i'm good i'm gonna remember this Something wrong is happening here. Yeah, although at the happened. time you weren't quite right. sure. You're like, I don't know. Every every dad is like this. I guess that's what dads do. Uh, completely. I we I was talking to. Uh, we had uh, this is the now you're in trouble because I'm going to talk about spreading mulch. But <laughs> my wife bought an excessive amount of mulch to spread, and it was sitting in our driveway, and um, like about three weeks ago. And I was very tempted to have one of my friend's kids or one of my kids' friends come over and pay them to spread the mulch. And, but, and it reminded me of I had a friend growing up who, whose parents never let him have a sleepover unless there was yard work to be done. <laughs> and he would say, literally, he'd be like, hey, Paul, he's like, I think you ought to have like five or six friends sleep over tonight. And... You know, and we're and you're so young, you don't even have any like institutional memory of like, yeah, God, he made us rake leaves for like five hours last time we slept over. So you're like, oh yeah, sure, wow, what a treat! We get to sleep at Paul's house. 
<laughs> and he and that was the only time he ever could have kids over was because there was a ton of yard work to be done. Uh, you've inspired me. You can't man. get away with that anymore. You can't use no? children like oh. paid labor. All right, because I was already salting that away for a couple of years down the road because my son's only seven, but soon he and his friends will be old enough to do some yard work. So I, I may use it. I may try it anyway. Yeah, you. I think you'll find that they're less, they're less inspired um, people our age were. Right. We, again, <laughs> That's my, didn't know any my better. General son. No. Uh, we're talking with Josh Carp on downtown. Well, you mentioned watching Smile in the Afternoons, and that, that triggered for me uh, one of the supreme moments of, of 70s entertainment and education coming together in those ABC after-school specials. Oh, yeah. So those are were really... Sitting down and reading a list of the subjects and the scenarios and those things is is like an afternoon worth of I, I don't even I don't know if it's joy or horror or what it is, but it's unbelievable to read through them. There's one <laughs> I recall I was doing, doing believe it or not doing some research on these, and uh, there was um, there was one where. Red Buttons played a retired clown, <laughs> like right there. Right? Wow. <laughs> who who just missed being around children an enormous amount. And I can't even remember what he was doing, but I was like, it's like, oh, my God. Can you, I, I would love to have, to hear the pitch. Well, the old clown wants to be around children again. <laughs> Red Buttons, Scott Bayo. A very special story. <laughs> I, I, you know, it's, I, I digress for, for one second. I was interviewing somebody about the Pink Lady and Jeff variety show. Oh, oh love it. Love and, it. And he said, of, he was talking about how they couldn't get any guests. And he said, so we'd always, he said, I think Red Buttons was on three of our six episodes. He said, because. <laughs> He was about as difficult to get as a $25 sofa on Craigslist. <laughs> Carrie, do you, so do you have, Carrie may have information on this after school special with red buttons as a clown. Yes, it was called Alexander, and his one of his co stars was Jodie Foster. Oh, wow. Of course. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, hey, speaking of Pink Lady and Jeff, you, you have talked to Jeff Altman? I'm I am I am calling he he and I exchanged emails and I'm calling him next week to set up our uh, our interview. But oh, I've interviewed awesome. like all the writers um, about the brief, unhappy, <laughs> very strange history of Think Lady and John. Uh, look forward to hearing more about that. Well, we'll uh, we'll have to get your full report the next time you're on. Uh, Josh, always great to talk with you. Uh, good luck with that mulch, and uh, we'll catch up with you again soon. Thank you so much, Rich. It's great talking to you too. Josh Carp here on Downtown, the podcast. A quick word from our friends at Cross Insurance. And we're back with Tiffany after this on Downtown. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Living your heartbeat, living for your heartbeat, let me touch your heart.
Songtown, the podcast. A song Tommy James wrote and first released 34 years ago by Tiffany. She's back with a brand new version of I Think We're Alone Now from her new album, Shadows. Here's a little bit of Tiffany. Tiffany. What they say when we're together. I won't shock your blood. Back in 87, she went to number one. It was the first of back-to-back number ones for Tiffany. And she's been making music and acting for uh, all these many years. And has just released a brand new album, Shadows, that includes the remake of I Think We're Alone Now and the single Hey Baby. We talked about all that with Tiffany on Downtown. Hello, Tiffany. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, well, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Love the new music. I had a chance to listen to Hey Baby over the weekend and the the new version of I Think We're Alone Now. You sound great. Oh, well, thanks. I love um, the new version of I Think We're Alone Now. It's got a little bit of edge, a little bit of sass, like me now. (laughs) Um, And Hey Baby, the new single, is just um, such a great front runner for the Shadows album. It's really something we've been working on now well we're a year late releasing it because covid but it's right on time actually because i think it's going to be great now having a green light that i'm going to be touring june 5th tiffany tunes everybody we start our tour so wish me good vibes on that one um you know we've been just waiting for it all to come together and for it to be safe enough to do you know the touring and everything we've planned so it's great to get the green light and Hey Baby is the frontrunner single for the Shadows album. And it's fun. I mean, it's like a little wink back to the 80s, little punk vibe to it, a little Ramones, little Go-Go's, mm. little Tiffany. So it's all the things I love wrapped up in one. I love the I love the opening. Love those drums to get it started. Let you know right away that this is going to be a, a new sound, a very contemporary sound, but as you mentioned, some echoes of the past. I think so. I mean, 80s music was fun. Uh, you know, so I wanted to bring that element into everything I'm doing now. But it, again, it's got the edgy guitars. It's got the very modern sound. So it doesn't date it. You know, it brings it up all right here to what's happening now. Um, and it really is a new sound for me, um, which I'm thrilled. You know, again, Shadows is like a really high-energy album. So we're going to rock at full band June 5th. I'm very excited about that. We'll be doing some, um, well, I'm very excited because L.A. Guns, few of the members will be joining me as gun members. So I'm very excited because that's the second single. People will be like, what, Tiffany and L.A. Guns? But, uh, you know, that's the energy of this album. Behind the scenes, I've been really working and meeting new people and growing and, you know, performing and all things prior to COVID. We were just, the momentum was crazy and and just getting great reviews as a performer and a songwriter. So I've been working hard behind the scenes, and I think, you know, we, we always kind of go, ah, our plans got changed, and all these things happen, and what, the world up. But, you know, it, now looking at it, it's really right on time. I think everybody's ready to, like, resume their life, resume summer, have a good time as long as we're safe and keep doing the right things we can get a little of that energy back and that good time back. So I'm so excited to be right on time with that, have the new album being released now and have the new single Hey Baby out. A terrific video, too, for uh, the new version of I Think We're Alone Now. Where did you shoot that? 
I shot that in L.A. Well, that's the original vision uh, video was shot in L.A. So we had to go back home to my hometown, of course. But on this video, it was fun because I got to take you to my high school, uh, to the studio where we first recorded I Think We're Low Now. So a little bit more information, a little bit more behind the scenes. We're talking with Tiffany here on Downtown. Is it true that the maybe the first song you learned to sing was Delta Dawn when you were only four years old? The first song that I really learned to sing was Devil Woman, actually. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then that was my second song, that I actually learned the whole song. And, yes, I sang it everywhere I went. I drove my parents nuts. I'm so glad that, it, you know, all of it worked out because I tortured my family. I just didn't shut up. I love to sing. And, you know, my, my grandmother and my mom would always be like, oh, babe, let's eat you a cookie or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, it was just something that no one else in my family uh, is a musician. And so, you know, it just kind of came out of nowhere, something I was meant to be. And I'm lucky, again, later on, everybody started to support it when they just realized she really wants to do this. We don't know what to do with that. But, um, you know, uh, they were very supportive. Again, my family just didn't know anything about the music industry. So this was all completely meant to be an organic, how it all, you know, ended up happening. I was a big fan of Hoyt Axton. Can you talk about the role Hoyt and his mother May played in your career? It's funny. I was just talking about Hoyt last night um, to a friend of mine. And telling them about a little bit of Nashville, and I live in Nashville as well, so currently. And we were just talking about past and, and my history. And Hoyt Axon was so instrumental in my early career. I mean, you know, I got the record deal at 14, but I've been doing this since I was nine professionally. So Hoyt was one of the first people, again, my parents not knowing anything about the music industry. They love country music. Um, and my stepdad just basically stood outside the bus with Hoyt every time he would come to town to L.A. and just say, you know, my daughter's a singer. I don't know what I'm doing. I, can you give me advice? And one day he really got, you know, Hoyt's ear, and Hoyt invited me up on stage, and then that was it. Um, you know, he connected me with his mom. I went to Nashville for the first time when I was 10. I didn't end up recording as a country singer because the material was just too... Uh, it, you know, what do you sing at 10 in country music? So, you know, uh, so they kept encouraging me. Um, but, you know, I ended up getting a pop deal at 14. But, no, Hoyt was the first one to sit on the bus with my dad and give him some good advice and, and to really take me under his wing. So I'm for, for always going to love him. You have the ability to sing so many styles and different genres. I really enjoy the music you made uh, on your album, The Color of Silence. Thank you. I think that was the first, um, you know, look into my future. You know, the color of silence. We really worked hard. Um, uh, Tim uh, McFeehan, he really, you know, worked hard with me to kind of turn that corner. Um, before that, I was doing, you know, mostly like pop stuff, some dance stuff that I'd written, and we were having a blast with it. Uh, but I always wanted more of that edge uh, to get back to. Even the nine-year-old girl that was, like, singing Stevie Nicks going, I want to be a rock singer, you know. Um, and I'm forever grateful of my start, and I think we're low now. But obviously any musician or any artist wants to, you know, start to live on the path of what they also think and project is, was, you know, their next growth spurt. So for me, it was more getting to a little bit more of a rock base. And Color of Silence got great reviews. Um, you know, from Billboard and 
one of the best albums of 2000. So it, it just all this like, you know, praise and amen of the hard work behind the scenes and everybody who believed in me. You know, I couldn't I couldn't ask for more. It was like, yes, I'm on the right path. This is awesome. So just keep going. Um, my fans have always believed in me, and they're, you know, which I love, and they've always supported me in things that are genuine from the heart. So they know with my music, anything I'm writing or anybody I'm involved with, you know, I'm really excited about it, and I love that, that they're really, you know, they're open-minded. So, you know, Color Silence really kind of laid the base for that. I think now with Shadows coming out, you're going to really see the next growth spurt, all the different things in between that the new people in my life, the punk, you know, um, references that my producer's bringing, just all of that stuff that I've always loved, uh, just, you know, magnified by 10 now. So (laughs) (laughs) it all makes sense. I love it. A limited uh, edition vinyl picture disc has both Hey Baby and the new recording of I Think We're Alone Now and the album Shadows coming soon. We wish you good luck uh, with the single Hey Baby and with the album. Tiffany, thank you so much for making time for us. Uh, Thank you so much. Take care. Tiffany Darwish. Just Tiffany. One name. I aspire to that. I mean, there are people (laughs) who refer to me by one name, but I I can't can't repeat that on the air. not not a radio friendly name. Plus, but, you got to yeah. have the right name. You know, like Rich. That's not. That's never going to be a one name kind of thing. Carrie. No, unless it's R R I E and you're wreaking havoc at the prom. Yeah, it, my one name uh, potential was undercut by Stephen. Yeah, I think you're right. No question. Well, anyway, our thanks to Tiffany and to Josh Carpenter to you for joining us this week. Downtown the podcast brought to you by Cross Insurance. And we'll see you next time right here on Downtown.